is the WA Country Hour with Belinda Baraschetti on ABC Radio WA. it is great to have you here on this Thursday afternoon. Today, the Australian apple industry says it doesn't believe the federal government's border control is good enough to deal with the risks posed by apple imports from the United States. Our view is very much that until the government can guarantee the right measures are in place to protect Australia's price security, the government should stop the import of Apples from the US. And a perfect combination of weather conditions just over the past few days has led to a mass bleaching event of coral at the Abrolhos Islands off the Geraldton coast. We had that very strong winds and a very strong high that pushes the water levels even lower than they would be. And because it's new moon tides, they were at their extreme lows anyway. So it caused a lot of coral to come out of the water. When it first came out, it was quite bright and very beautiful looking. And by the third day, it was completely white. In the lead up to hearing that story just after news headlines at half past 12 today, go and check out the photos online. Just search ABC Coral Bleaching Abrolhos and just see that coral transform from those bright, beautiful colours to just pure white in a matter of days. Just search ABC Coral Bleaching Abrolhos to check the online story. Six past 12 here on the Country Hour. And the state's largest sheep and lamb processing cooperative, WAMCO, has had a stellar 21-22 financial year with a record pre-tax net profit of $50.5 million, blitzing previous records of around $20 million. It is an extremely pleasing result considering the challenges around labour and logistics. But when lamb and mutton products are selling for prices never been seen before, you do expect a pretty good profit result. Cole McCrory is WAMCO's Group Chief Executive in charge of the WA plant here at Catanning and the Goulburn facility in New South Wales. Cole, how did the year unfold across the two facilities here in WA and in New South Wales, the big, the big, ple- the big pleasing factor was that both plants were operating for the first sort of nine months of the year very, very efficiently with good loadings of stock, and then the sort of the labour issues hit in pr- uh, after COVID struck, and uh, we were struggling at a, probably about eighty percent of our potential capacity, which really did hurt us a little bit, but. Uh, as you can see from the result, most of the runs were scored early on and through those first nine months of that last season. Can you break it down that the financial performance, I guess, of the two meatworks, the one here at Catanning and the one in Goulburn, and the sort of numbers that went through? Well, we sort of was very evenly uh, matched, to be honest. The first half of the season was very, very strong for Catanning. So we we got through the first sort of six or seven months very strongly there, and they would have had the better first six months. But the second six months, uh, Goulburn just um, absolutely flew, and uh, we saw huge numbers of stock, which has been created by the good seasons over there, the last two to three seasons in the build of stock. We saw a solid throughput right through that six to seven months of uh, uh, last or this year, actually, and so that that was sort of the key to the whole thing, really. Yeah, have you got that number on the top of your head there? 
in terms of the stock uh, going through the system? We did about 1.86 million stock units, which, you know, it's, it's up there. It's, it's up pretty close to, a, I wouldn't say it's the best we've ever done, but it's getting up there to be one of the better years we have had. I do expect more to be processed this 12 months between the two sites. That's generally because I'm, as long as uh, nothing goes awry with and COVID doesn't creep back in and uh, labour doesn't uh, fall away, that, that we should have a very solid 12 months right through with our processing. Um, and hopefully we don't have that tail off where we did last winter when we were struggling to get overseas labour in and that sort of thing. So it should, uh, all things being equal, we should have a very strong 12 months. I remember we spoke earlier in the year, sort of mid-year, about the bonuses for the grower shareholders. What did that come to in the end? What were you able to pass on to the shareholders? Uh, we made a payment of $8.4 million, which is another record, obviously, and on the back of a record result. And we just felt that we uh, we had to give them a very good return given the uh, season that we had. So at the AGM last week, that was well received. And um, I, I guess it's been a pretty strong few years for the uh agricultural sector. We are seeing, you know, some headwinds now though, and with inflation biting around the world, it's certainly revenues are going to come off a little or a fair bit from where they've been. But in saying that, they still should historically look reasonable, but it is definitely, there's definitely a drop off there this season. Are you surprised by the result, considering the challenges that have been there for the industry? Yeah, I guess our investment in market is is a key. Um, we've we've spent millions on uh, developing processing plants with the big New Zealand companies up in North America, and I guess that's given us that little bit of a leg up where we we're able to you know our antibiotic free, grass fed, pasture raised animals we can extract a better revenue, or uh, well, not a better revenue, but just a better base for our most of our high-end products so it just puts us into another sphere as far as that's concerned and that's where we have been able to produce a you know profit like that but as i say it's also on the back of other markets like the middle east china they've all malaysia they've all been quite strong over that 12 months this is the country hour on the abc catching up with cole mccrury from wamco and just talking about the fact that it's a, a pre-tax net profit of $50.5 million for the 21-22 financial year. Uh, a new record being set by the uh, Meatworks. Now, Cole, what are the challenges ahead then? I mean, we've already spoken about, you know, the, the labour shortage, freight and logistics. We haven't even got to that yet. Are those sort of issues still, what, what would you sort of identify as the key challenges that are still there and going forward? Uh, Labor is still a challenge, but it's not it's not as bad as it was six to eight months ago. So we are getting seeing some overseas labour filter through. It's not to where we'd like it, but it has improved. The logistics is still a major issue. Um, shipping lines out of Fremantle, um, just it's very very um, stop start. We're not always getting the access we need to meet the market requirements for chilled product. Are you still trucking at East, Cole? We're still we, we training or trucking um, some East because if we don't, we'll be in trouble. Uh, we won't meet the customers' requests in North America, so there is a bit of that. We're also 
uh, going through the expensive exercise of air freighting more, more which is, uh, you know, we know we can get it into the market in time, but uh, it's a cost. But look, we, we do everything we can to uh, make sure we meet the customers' requirements and there's, there's a cost, a major cost that comes with that. So, yeah, it, it, is, it is a challenging time. There's, it's certainly not easy. Um, and, you know, on the back of that, as I said before, uh, inflation worldwide is really kicking in with consumers now and um, customers and supermarkets are looking for some relief there. So we're not going to see... There's, there's no way we're going to see record prices this year. But as I said, they still will be pretty good given, you know, lambs are also doing well, but a bit heavier. Farmers are still going to get pretty good returns for their investments. One of the challenges that we've seen for, well, not, a, not only in your sector, but a range of different industries is just finding that accommodation to house workers. And, you know, just in the last couple of months, we've spoken to uh, the Shark Lake facility around Esperance. They're putting in um, accommodation. They bought the hotel there and uh, sprucing it up. And then we've spoken to the big table grape grower here, Frutico, also spending millions of dollars building their own accommodation because they're, you know, at the moment just sort of uh, bussing people around the region to get to work. Do you have the similar sort of issue? Yes, well, we're lucky we have a third-party uh, operator that owns houses in, in the area so that they we can house many of our employees overseas labour there. Uh, we've also... Um, we're in a transaction at the moment with the Jumbuck Motel in um, Katanning, and we hope to purchase that in the near future. We see that as a vital move for going forward to house some of our labour. We're still going to run it as a motel, so it's not going to be 100% WAMCO accommodation by any means, but we're hoping to be able to use half, sort of half the motel as a accommodation if and when needed. Uh, and on top of that, we've uh, made the decision that we are going to invest in our own accommodation block and around Katanning over the next two to three years. And we, we need to do that properly and uh, set it up right and make sure that we have a facility for employees, overseas people who do want to come and work for us and make sure it's a nice environment and that sort of thing. So. Yes, uh, we've had to. We've, um, it's probably something we we didn't really. We, it's not our core business, but if you don't do it, um, you're going to be battling for labour for, for in the years ahead. There's no doubt about that. And at what stage then is the accommodation that you plan to build from scratch? Very early, uh, just pre-planning sort of stage. So we're going through the. Um, just getting every our ducks in a row, and uh, but we're hoping that during sometime next year we'll we'll make some real inroads into that. And as I said, we'll have that other motel that we'll just use as an offset in the meantime. And so, how many workers would be housed at the hotel and at the new facility? We could hopefully get about forty to fifty at the at the motel, and then. But once we get the new facility, we're, we're looking at 100 to 120 people. So it's a pretty big operation. Yeah. So, yeah, look, it's, uh, yeah, but, but but it must be done because, um, you know, it's very, very difficult now to employ um, lo- local Australians and even more difficult when you live in a more isolated spots like Katanning. And, I mean, an expense and an, an area of investment that I, I guess you probably never thought you'd have to go down this road. Absolutely. Five years ago, you probably 
wouldn't have thought so, but I guess just the whole COVID and the lockdowns and people's ease of getting in and out of borders and it's just, it's created a whole new industry really. And uh, yeah, like, you know, you're right. Uh, it's not only on this West Coast, but on the East Coast, we're seeing the same happening um, with companies that are growing fruit and what have you. They're having to do the same thing because they, they just haven't got the the employees needed to pick fruit and that sort of thing. And they're having to buy hotels and build and build, buy houses and build accommodation as well. So it, it's a massive uh, turnaround from where it's been. I think Roger Fahl from Fruitico was saying that it's going to be around, just off the top of my head, I think it was about a $5 million ballpark figure for the facility he's building or plans to build in the Peel region here in Western Australia. Is that the sort of figure you're looking at? Yeah, well, it is. It could even be more than that. It's a bit too early to say, but it could be between five and ten million. There's no doubt about that, given the current the costs wow. of uh, building these facilities now. Eighteen past twelve. This is the Country Hour, and this is Cole McCrory. He's from the big sheep and lamb processing company Wamco, which has just delivered a record profit of $50.5 million. Cole, besides investing in new accommodation for your workers, what other investments and upgrades do you have in the pipeline? Yeah, we're hoping to uh, provide the uh, ability for our shareholders to be able to kill on a second shift at Katani over the next 12 to 18 months. To do that, we're having to upgrade our freezer system and also our call stores where we uh, hold product and then load out. So we're looking to make a substantial, probably about a $20 million investment there. You need to make money when you're making investments like that, and but it's all for the future of the shareholders and WA land producers. So we're in it for the long haul. We're a co-op and we've got to reinvest in the business to make sure that we keep ahead of, ahead of the game. So, yeah, it's just one of those things that we've got to keep improving and, and, and we will. How are you reading the situation at the moment, Cole, in terms of uh, some of the decisions farmers are going to be making? If I just look here at West, in Western Australia, I mean, for those in the grain business, things are looking really expensive <laughs> next year with everything yeah. going up, interest rates, fuel, fertiliser, labour, etc. And I think there's a, a few people just crunching some numbers about that sort of split between cropping and livestock going forward into the new season. How, how are you reading it in terms of what you think you're going to be getting the numbers through and, and that reliability of supply coming through the meatworks? Yeah, we, we're thinking uh, as long as we don't have do in a couple of years of drought now, um, we're, we're thinking the builders of stock is very good. Farmers are working out that lambs and, and mutton are a pretty good option given the cost, the input costs that are going up with the um, cropping and what have you. So we, we are here also having, our costs are going up as well internally, uh, obviously packaging and labour and everything we see is increases as well. But at least if we get good seasons and the grass is growing and it's it's a very economic way in to a product that's very much sought after uh, worldwide. Uh, it's still a niche product. It's only ourselves in New Zealand that are really big net exporters of it. So the demands there, they, they see it as a very healthy protein. It's very easy for it to be 
like a clean, green image product, and, and that's very important. If you go to the States and Canada now and you go through the supermarkets, all you see is just banners up advertising uh, when you're in the lamb section just and the beef section, just how important that health thing is and how they're promoting that. And since COVID, it's become even more important that we can produce products of that nature because the world is looking for it. So for growers that are considering or people that are considering going in more into livestock, I think there's a there's a really big future there. So uh, yeah, no, it's, it's looking not too bad uh, as far as that's concerned. Well, great to talk to you, Cole. And uh, thank you so much for going through the details and a, a, a very impressive result. Thank you. Cole McCreary, he is the CEO of the WA Meat Marketing Cooperative and very happy with that uh, record pre-tax net profit of $50.5 million, 22 past 12. You're part of the Country Hour with Belinda Varischetti on ABC Local Radio WA. The Australian apple industry says it doesn't believe the federal government's border control is good enough to deal with the risks posed by United States apple imports. The Federal Department of Agriculture has recommended apple imports from the USA be allowed, subject to strict biosecurity protocols. However, Phil Turnbull, CEO of Apple and Pear Australia, is not sure the government can keep out some of the nasty pests found in North America. Whilst we do support the work that the Department of Agriculture has done around the scientific procedures, we've actually got low confidence in the government's ability to protect the borders from damaging pests and diseases. Our view is very much that until the government can guarantee the right measures are in place to protect Australia's high security, the government should stop the import of apples from the US. So you don't trust the government protocols to keep out the pests and diseases that the US has that Australian growers don't have to deal with? The protocols are scientifically sound, theoretically. What we have concerns about is the ability at the border to manage biosecurity. And in the recent times with the outbreaks of things like varroa mites, they're legitimate concerns because we have continually issues with biosecurity outbreaks in Australia. And so, uh, yes, we saw in the budget that it was an announcement around uh, investing money in biosecurity. Until that happened, we would say that we'd want to stop the import of uh, apples from the US until such time as we can have some confidence around the procedures. And what are the greatest biosecurity threats that the US apple industry poses to Australia? Look, there's a number of pests and diseases that Australia doesn't have. Fireblade is probably the, the one that's most concerning. There are a number of others, but again, we very much want to try and keep the growing scenario here in Australia clean and green, and we don't really want to have to have to deal with additional pests and diseases that might actually then be counterproductive in terms of market access that we have going outside of the country. And what threat in terms of market share do you think the US poses to Australia? Yeah, it's an interesting question. Again, look, I think they are obviously a very, very large apple grower. They grow some very high quality. The Australian industry grows equally good quality, if not better, locally supplied at very reasonable prices. So our view is that we'll defend our market very closely and we're confident that the Australian consumer gets some of the best quality in the world. CEO of Apple and Pear Australia, Phil Turnbull with Warwick Long. 24 past 12. 
Federal Agriculture Minister Murray Watt understands some of the concerns being raised by Australian apple growers regarding apple imports from the United States, but he wants to reassure growers and shoppers that the strictest biosecurity standards possible apply to any apple imports from the US or any other country. We obviously take biosecurity extremely seriously in this country and you probably saw even in the most recent federal budget we've kicked in another $134 million to further tighten our biosecurity regime. But the reality is uh, if we do want to be able to trade with other countries and if we want to be able to sell our beef, our dairy, our sheep, our wheat, our wool to other countries, then that also does mean from time to time we need to allow other countries to import to us as well. There is so suggestion take, yeah. that citrus for, from Australia to the US was effectively traded off against US apples coming back the other way. Is that the case? Well, I wouldn't quite put it that way, uh, Warwick, but certainly we have an interest in exporting a range of other products, including citrus, to the US. And the reality is that it's very unlikely that we can open up markets in other countries for other products if we're not also willing to consider taking their imports in some cases as well. And I think what we need to make sure of is that when we are thinking about allowing imports from other countries, whether it be the US or anywhere else, that we make sure we do it on our terms and in particular have very strong biosecurity regimes. And that's certainly what we're intending to do here. Uh, as Apple and Pear Australia, the industry body that represents the apple growers in Australia, they say they understand the science behind and, and they accept the science behind the importation measures, but they don't trust the government work at the borders to keep out pest and disease, citing varroa mite, guava root nematode and other incursions in recent years as areas where border protection has failed. What assurances can you give them that it will be different this time? Uh, well, I suppose the assurances I can give them are that, first of all, we do continue to have one of the world's strongest biosecurity systems. And sure, there are examples where from time to time it hasn't picked up everything. But if you think about the range of plant, animal and other diseases that are in other parts of the world, I think Australia's biosecurity system has stood the test of time pretty well. But in addition, as I say, we've taken the opportunity in the most recent federal budget to strengthen our biosecurity measures even further um, with extra biosecurity officers, extra detector dogs, the livestock traceability system that we're implementing as well. Um, the other thing to bear in mind for this particular uh, issue is that the requirements of any trade will be that inspections need to be conducted uh, of consignments of apples on the US side of the border uh, before they even get transported to Australia and they will be inspected again on arrival. So we'll certainly be doing everything we possibly can uh, to ensure that the sorts of diseases that are out there don't get brought back into Australia and I have every confidence in our biosecurity officers that they'll do the right thing. There is also concerns from industry and, and as I mentioned in the introduction to you to control things like fire blight which is not in Australia. Uh, growers need to use things like antibiotic sprays which are not allowed to be used by Australian apple growers. Um, is that an unfair playing field if they're using products in, in America to grow apples that aren't allowed by growers here? Well, I think, again, if you look around the world and look at the entire trading system overall, um, different countries do things in different ways. Um, we have standards in Australia that apply for very good reasons and very often uh, they actually add a premium to the product. And I'd be certainly encouraging apple growers to spruik very loudly the quality uh, and the uh, green nature of much of their production as a competitive advantage over apples that come in from any part of the world. So I certainly haven't given up hope 
hope on the Australian apple industry. You know, we, I think we all think that Australian apples are the best in the world. Um, they're super crunchy. They're super sweet. That'll go on. Uh, and I think that making sure that we keep producing the best product we possibly can uh, is good for our domestic sales. But also, I mean, we're obviously keen to work with the apple industry to increase our exports of Australian apples as well. Currently, we actually export less than 1% of all of the apples grown in Australia. There are other markets out there that are interested in taking our apples, and I, and I want to work with the industry to take advantage of those opportunities. Yeah, and just on that note, Assistant Trade Minister Tim Ayres raised the ire of fruit growers yesterday in response to a similar question saying that growers should just export more. The growers say, well, US fruit is subsidised by up to 65% to, to export, as well as other fruit-producing nations. Is that what holds back Australian exports like apples is the fact that they're competing in an unfair market. Oh, look, I'm, I'm sure that that does affect some producers, uh, whether it be apples or other crops as well. But, you know, every country that we try to import our uh, or export our products to has their own rules. In some cases, there are some subsidies. In some cases, uh, there are biosecurity regimes that other countries impose and, and they don't like necessarily things that we do. So it's a complex system that we have to navigate our way through. But I can sure, assure the industry that we'll be you know really cooperating with them as much as we possibly can. Uh, I've had industry figures talk to me about the opportunities they see in other countries, whether it be Japan or other parts of Asia. Uh, and with a bit of help from government, we can potentially open up some of those markets even more. And that's what I'm going to be focusing on going forward. Federal Agriculture Minister Murray Watt with Warwick Long. On the text from Paul in Manjimup, I've seen apple growers pushing orchard out all over the last couple of years already from no profit. More fruit on the market will just push more growers over the edge. Labour destroying more farms. The cops, the nurses, the teachers, all striking. All us farmers Australia-wide should have a two-week strike, buy and sell nothing. See how the system goes with that says Paul in Manjimup. The text 0448 922 to 1. Time for an update from the newsroom with Tony Carr. Good afternoon, Belinda. The Federal Treasurer, Jim Chalmers, says the government won't call on WA to drop its gas reservation policy as the price of energy is expected to rise on the East Coast. WA is shielded from forecast energy price hikes due to its domestic gas reservation policy and the decision to not privatise electricity assets. Australia's anti-money laundering watchdog has launched an investigation into two of the nation's biggest online sports betting companies over money laundering concerns. Austrac has appointed external auditors to assess sports bets and Bet365's compliance with the anti-money laundering and counter-terrorism financing laws. Both companies could face multi-million dollar fines if breaches are found. And Russia says the world's nuclear powers are teetering on the brink of a direct armed clash. It again has accused the West of encouraging what it called provocations with weapons of mass destruction without providing any details or evidence. Belinda, more news at one o'clock. Tony, thank you for the update. 28 to 1. This is the Country Hour with Belinda Varischetti on ABC Local Radio WA. If you've noticed lots of lovely white flowers in the southwest lately, make sure you stay listening because very shortly you're going to be hearing all about arum lilies. 
I would call it the cane toad of the southwest. That's that to me is the level of severity of the problem. It's interesting, isn't it? Whenever I travel through that region and I've got someone in the car visiting from interstate, they always say, "Oh, look at those beautiful flowers!" You know, what are they? And I say, "They're weeds." What are your thoughts on the efforts to try and keep these weeds under control? Maybe you're part of that program that's um, sort of been spending the last couple of years trying to bring them under control. Let me know on text 0448 to text through. It'd be great to know if you've been part of that program and what sort of success you've had or how difficult it's been. 0448 922 Also, the results of the Mount Barker cattle market for you just before the news at one. Right now, it is off to the Bureau of Meteorology. Angeline Prasad is with you. And Angeline, what a gorgeous day in the city it is today. It's a beautiful spring day, almost a touch of summer in the air. What's it like around the rest of the Southwest Land Division? It certainly is, Belinda. Yes, a bit warm today. Uh, we're forecasting a top of 32 in the city and other areas, mainly through the central weed belt. We're expecting temperatures to touch into the low, low 30. So York, we're forecasting um, 32 there as well today. So quite quite warm and across the Great Southern, generally temperatures in the mid-20s. So we've got these uh, very warm temperatures extending down along the, uh, the the southwest land division because we've got a west coast trough that's deepening and it's likely to move inland uh, later today. And as it translates inland, um, um, we do see a very weak front brush past the south coast uh, later today. So that might trigger very isolated thunderstorms, but the chance of that happening is, is quite low today. Um, there are cooler temperatures on the way, um, so for the next couple of days as that trough moves inland into into the gold fields and Gascoigne, uh, we'll see cooler temperatures behind that trough, so generally temperatures will drop about 2 to 4 degrees. So there are much more pleasant temperatures on the way for the next couple of days. In terms of precipitation, we're not expecting much um, until early next week, so the next few days, including the weekend, there'll be just light showers on the south coast um, uh, of the Southwest Land Division, but it's going to be mostly sunny elsewhere and, you know, um, sort of temperatures, um, sort of more average values over the next few days. Now, the Southwest Land Division will see a wet week next week. So we do see a couple of uh, uh, systems move through. So that will bring a few millimetres of showers every day. That includes the Great Southern and the Central Reed Belt. So pretty much every day. There might be a bit of a respite from the wet weather on Wednesday. But we do see a few millimetres generally every day next week, starting from Sunday. Um, across elsewhere, as this trough moves inland, we do see a, a low-pressure system deepen um, uh, through the Gascoigne and uh, and the gold fields over the next couple of days, especially through the weekend. In the north, uh, the north has been in the grips of a heat wave, uh, but um, we'll see a bit more shower and thunderstorm activity over the next couple of days. So that will bring some relief to the heat wave conditions. So generally temperatures have been in the low 40s, but uh, in most areas through the Kimberley, we'll see those temperatures, those uh, maximum temperatures of the day, sort of be more in the mid to high 30s. And um, uh, during the weekend, we'll see some showers and thunderstorms extend into the inland areas. So some gusty thunderstorm activity inland, uh, sort of through the interior and the gold fields as that trough moves inland.
in terms of warnings, uh, just a marine wind warning out for today. Um, so we're expecting strong winds uh, through the East Pilbara and West Pilbara and through the Albany coasts today. Angeline, thank you so much for going through all that. 27 to 1 here on the Country Hour. Taking a look at the rainfall now in the last 24 hours to 9 o'clock this morning. The most rain that fell anywhere in WA was two millimetres at Oakmarsh Farm in the southern coastal region. And in the Eucla district, air also received two mils. Off to Mushave, uh, not Mushave, Mount Barker today for the results of the cattle market. Talking about those arum lilies and the efforts to try and get them under control, especially in the southwest of the state. And also taking a look at avocado exports and the prices to be expected both on the domestic and the export markets. First, though, a perfect combination of weather conditions over the past four days has led to a mass bleaching event of coral at the Abrolhos Islands off the Geraldton coast. It's been described as an important natural process. But in that process, thousands of hectares of coral at the Abrolhos has turned white after being exposed to strong cold winds when water levels drop significantly. Jane Lydon is a crayfisher and pearl farmer who spent her life at the islands. She says some bleaching of coral at this time of year is normal, but this year's event is extreme. Well, we've had a very extreme low tide event caused by a few different factors. It doesn't usually quite get this bad. But we had that very strong winds and, and a very strong high and that pushes the water levels even lower than they would be. And because it's new moon tides, they were at their extreme lows anyway. So it caused a lot of coral to come out of the water when the wind was very cold and very strong. And over the, the last three days... It's bleached a lot of the coral. When it first came out, it was quite bright and very beautiful looking. And that evening, it, it spawned, so it was a lot of, which is very unusual for this time of year here. And then the second day, it was even lower and still very windy and very cold. And it began to go white. And by the third day, it was completely white. And you could see a little brown edge at the bottom where the coral still had or a little purpley brown where, where it hadn't come out. But the tops of everything were bright white. It was like there were new islands everywhere. It just looks like someone's pulled the plug at the Abrolhos yes. and, and drained out all the water. It's quite incredible. And it basically has transformed everything around the islands into this white landscape where there's normally water that's right but yes luckily today the winds eased and the water's not as low because those lowest point of the the tide has passed and perhaps the air pressure isn't quite so low now so the water's come back in a little bit today but it has bleached a lot of the top of the stag coral whether that recovers or not we we're yet to see i hope that some of it will come back but I think some of it won't and it'll probably what happens in those cases is a sort of weedy algal growth ends up growing on the top of it and the problem with that in a way is that the, the coral that's underneath that whereas it's alive at the moment and maybe that will cause the whole sort of stag corals to die but we're yet to see what happens maybe some will recover I don't know 
Abrolhos Island fisher Jane Lydon talking to Joe Prendergast about the coral bleaching event which has happened over the past four days at the Abrolhos. You can read more of Joe's story online, including an explanation about how and why these sorts of mass coral bleaching events grow the Abrolhos Islands and the coral reefs that surround them. And just go there anyway to have a look at the photos. They are really impressive just to see that transformation of the coral in just a couple of days. Search ABC Coral Bleaching Abrolhos to have a look at those photos and read through Joe's story. Uh, you are tuned to the Country Hour on the ABC right across Western Australia. Well, the peak body representing avocado growers is predicting national yields will be down about 10% this year. And in Western Australia, that number could be as high as 50%. The drop in production is simply due to what's considered a normal two-year growth cycle for avocado trees. But when production drops, domestic prices usually rise, and that's got the head of Avocados Australia a little worried. John Tyus says industry has worked so hard trying to develop new export markets, so he thinks it would be a real shame if producers only focused on good domestic prices. There's been a lot of new orchards planted over the last few years, so we've actually got a lot of uh, new production coming on board. And you, you know, those that eat avocados regularly would have would have noticed the, the much lower prices over the last year or so, uh, simply driven by really solid supply. So we desperately need to be exporting more avocados out of Australia. We saw last year, uh, this year just gone, um, our total exports tripled from the previous year. So there's definitely been a lot of lot of avocados going into other markets. Our main markets are Singapore, Malaysia and Hong Kong. And uh, they're what we call open markets. They don't require uh, protocols. Um, but a few years ago, uh, we got access for, um, for, for WA to Japan and Japan is is the largest uh, avocado market in in Asia so obviously a really important market and a, and a great outcome to uh, to get access for West Australia as I mentioned a few moments ago WA's avocado production for this year is forecast to be half of what was picked last year so it is understandable that many WA growers will be tempted to concentrate on domestic markets just because of those uh, prices that are going to rise here on the local market. But John Tyre says he knows the biggest producers and exporters are keen to look after those emerging export markets. The industry leaders over in WA and the, and the main exporters um, fully understand the importance of committing uh, long-term to, to grow that market. Um, you know, so we're going to see supply continue to increase. So although this year's a light year, next year's most likely going to be a big year and the following year's going to be bigger still. So, you know, the, the industry really needs to stay very committed, regardless of uh, what domestic prices might do, needs to stay very committed to supplying and growing the export market in Japan. So we're expecting that um, volumes from WA into Japan will will be triple what they were last year. To be honest, they're still not big volumes, not compared with um, Mexico. Mexico totally dominates the the Japanese market, uh, and that's who we're we're competing with. But you know the the exporters have been really encouraged 
by how how well the Australian avocados have have been received, and we hope that can continue to build on that. So, can you explain why only WA has access to the Japanese market? Yeah, so the market access it's it's what we call technical market access. So, due to um, quarantine requirements, um, we need to be able to demonstrate that we can manage pests of concern. Mm. So, it, for avocados, the main pest is fruit fly. So, in WA. Um, we have Mediterranean fruit fly and in the east coast we have Queensland fruit fly. So uh, the protocol that's been um, developed for WA addressing Mediterranean fruit fly is based on lots and lots of data that's been generated over many years around the world because lots of countries have Mediterranean fruit fly. So we're, we're yet to get access for the east coast. There's been a lot of research done to support a protocol for Queensland fruit fly and that's been presented to the Australian government and we're really keen for them to to negotiate access for the rest of the country uh, as a priority because you know we can supply year round to to Japan if we had access for the whole country and that would allow us to really build up build a solid market presence in Japan. Yeah, so how far away do you think it is? you know, for somewhere like Queensland to get access to that market with all that in mind? Probably longer than we would like. You know, we've been wanting to to get access for a few years now and, uh, you know, it's just a matter of prioritising those negotiations which are government to government. We have just appointed a new position in Avocados Australia, Chief of Export Market Access, uh, and that new role will will focus on trying to get access to these markets, export markets, and developing these protocols um, a, a lot faster than it has has been happening. I mean, the whole the whole process is is very slow. We've been trying to get access to um, Thailand for WA for 10 years, about 10 years, and uh, we believe we're very, very close, which is great. But you know, unless we've got these new markets, the, the Australian industry is going to really, really struggle with the volumes that are coming. CEO of Avocados Australia, John Tyers, speaking to Georgia Hargreaves. 14 to 1 here on the Country Hour, and there have been fresh calls for more to be done to tackle arum lilies in Western Australia. You know the ones I'm talking about. They're those beautiful-looking white flowers that you would have seen growing near rivers or creeks, particularly in the state's southwest. Over 1,500 landholders in the Augusta Margaret River region have spent the last few years spraying the invasive weed which can be lethal if it's eaten by livestock. Anne Ward is chair of Nature Conservation Margaret River and says arum lilies pose all sorts of serious threats to the region. Yes, you you look around here though, you see properties that are unsprayed and have never been managed and it's a major, major problem. It's choking our rivers. It's the the Margaret River and other rivers here. It's um, toxic to wildlife it um, chokes out the natural plants that are supposed to be there and as I said it's poisonous to everything it's it's a terrible terrible weed it's so successful I would call it the cane toad of the southwest that's that to me is the level of severity of the problem it's certainly a beautiful flower to look at though do you think everyone (laughs) realizes that it is so toxic Um, no and you know when I first came here I wasn't really aware of the level of the problem I saw a lot of arums there but I didn't understand and I think most people come to the southwest without a lot of awareness I think most of us just think it's a pretty white flower 
But like things, once you see it, you can't unsee how bad it is. I think you re- once you realise how significant it is as a toxic agent, as an invasive agent, then you know. And I guess it's that, that's why Nature Conservation Margaret River Region has this education program and we've been working for over 10 years um, now with significant funding to manage the Aram problem but also educate people, empower them to do something about it. Mm. So in terms of actually managing the weed, what needs to be done? You mentioned uh, chemicals. Can you pull them out? If you have a small number, you could possibly do that on a small area. But an area like this, which was three acres of... When I first got here and started pulling the, looking at them, you would dig down. This is over 100, probably 150 years since, I think, I believe, Hannah Gale introduced the plant into the region. So what you end up with when you look into the ground is just massive, multiple, what looks the equivalent of a sweet potato, but multiple sizes. So the chemical is probably getting the large ones that have leaf form. But in the ground, there's much more there that's still going to come up over subsequent years. So it requires a lot of continuous work in the first instance. Also, birds carry the seeds and drop them elsewhere. So those ones are probably the ones you could pull out if it's, because they're relatively superficial in clumps. But a vast number of them are really deep. They're very hard to get to. And try as you will, I think you'll find it very difficult to get it out other than using chemical, unfortunately. Mm. How do you go in an area like Margaret River where a lot of people are conscious of using chemicals? How do you go encouraging people to use it for this purpose? Well, I think it's actually really important that we work out the reason for this. This is to try and return that, the natural, the biodiversity and natural world here. It's a relatively benign chemical. It acts and sort of alters a couple of what we call the amino acids in the plant so that subsequently it, when it's trying to develop the following year it's unable to. I don't think it's a particularly toxic and it's relatively specific and the way we spray we tried to be very specific just on the leaf and just using the doses required. It doesn't last very long in the soil and it's the greater outcome that we're after. We're really trying to restore biodiversity and we are a biodiversity hotspot. We're an area with incredible diversity and yet we've lost so much to this weed that I think we've got to look at the bigger, the bigger hole and do something about that. Anne Ward, she's Chair of Natural Conservation Margaret River, which supplies southwest landholders the appropriate chemicals and the equipment to spray arum lilies for free. Nine minutes to one. Rick Ensley is a farmer in the Margaret River region and is also a contract sprayer. So in other words, people and shires hire him to spray arum lilies. He is very passionate about fighting the weed because he considers it the greatest threat to the southwest's biodiversity. And in some areas, he thinks the problem is getting worse. The arum has moved into different landscapes. It seemed to be pretty much a weed of lowlands, streamside, riverside itself, and then they became more established along the coast, higher up the hills, in different sorts of vegetation associations. We had a golden opportunity, which we took advantage of after the 2010 coastal fires, where we had access to all that area, you know, from Redgate up to Ellensbrook and whatever, and basically destroyed the arum lily, same as the opportunity that now exists in the Baranup area after the fire. So you can use those tragic you know, events as a window to get in and really make a big difference for far less work and expense. Where to from here then, Rick? What's the solution in your eyes? 
Well, the, the solution is one, recognition we are never going to eradicate the arum lily from the southwest corner of the land division. However, what we need is more cooperation between agencies, state and local government, and private landowners. So there are more and more areas where the arum lily has been taken out of its dominance and becomes an easy maintenance program. So their declared plant status of the arum lily still exists, but it's my understanding, I should research it further for you, is that the obligation, control obligation, has been taken away. So neither public nor private landowners are required to control the spread. That's basically it, prevent dispersal of propagules. So where we need to go is mechanisms to help the state government fund and acknowledge more the importance of the problem, work in coordination with private landowners and the local government and nature conservation in Lower Blackwood, and have a way to, basically I hate to say it, but apply a stick as well as the carrots. It's great that people cooperate, but there needs to be, just like with fire breaks, you have a fire break control order, you do your fire break, or you get fined. In the old days, the Agricultural Protection Board came on your land to do your blackberry control or arums if you hadn't done it. You got a, a fee. You were charged for it. That's basically the mechanism that we could be going for. Aram Lily contractor sprayer Rick Ensley. What do you think is the solution to the Aram Lily problem? Or is there no solution? Give up? Not spray these chemicals on these pretty white flowers? What are your thoughts? Zero double four eight nine double two six zero four is the text. Tony in Denmark says it'll take more than free chemicals to gain control of Aram Lilies. Many farmers and local government will need access to grant funds to employ contract weed groups. At present, a big portion of grant funding is used by administration within so-called conservation bodies, says Tony in Denmark. 0448 922 to text through with your thoughts or what you know about it. Six to one. Well, are the shires doing enough to tackle the Aram Lily problem? The city of Bustleton is spending around a million dollars of ratepayers' money on arum lily spraying. But Mayor Grant Henley says it still feels like they're fighting a losing battle. We uh, look after an area of about 18,000 hectares, much of which is, is crown land, but which we have management over. We're actively looking at weed management over about a third of that. There are areas that we're just unable to, to go to and don't have the resources to go to, uh, but even those efforts uh, are pushing a million dollars a year that we are putting into to those matters. There's widespread infestations of, of various weeds, not just arum lilies, uh, throughout all of our uh, natural forest areas and uh, much of that is, is Crown land, is, is state government land, but also private land. It's been a very long, wet winter and spring, I think, and that's probably led to them being around and and more visual for longer than we would usually experience, which perhaps has led to a perception that, that it's more widespread than usual. So what's the biggest challenge, I suppose, with addressing this issue? Uh, I, I think you could always throw a lot of money at it, and, and if we wanted to go out, if, if resources and manpower wasn't an issue in an ideal world, we could go and throw three, four, five million dollars uh, to temporarily eradicate many of those weed species. The reality is we don't have those resources, we don't have that level of funding, um, we don't have the manpower to do it at the moment. So without community buy-in through some of those uh, volunteer groups, uh, we'd, we'd be really hard-pressed to meet 
meet those. But yeah, in an ideal world, you would do that. But you'd be back by the time you finish doing one level, you'd be back starting again. It would be a full-time commitment. So do you think the city of Busselton will be seeking more state or even federal funding to help, you know, get more boots on the ground? We would absolutely welcome more funding from state and federal authorities to assist. But at the moment, there's also the reality that even if we were to get funding, we just don't have uh, the manpower. Um, you know, we, like everyone else uh, in the economy, is, is facing staff shortages and uh, you, you need to have people to do that work. City of Busselton Mayor Grant Henley. Graeme Stewart farms sheep at Vass, which is about 240 kilometres south of Perth. He's been battling arum lilies for the last 15 years and would like to see more research going into the weed to help find alternative control methods. As a farmer, I've, I've never seen you control a pest with a single mode of action, and that is, in this case, is spraying. They've controlled other pests with rusts and beetles and stuff, um, but we obviously need to all be screened to make sure that they're not going to affect other things. But, yeah, no, look, chemicals alone are going to be a problem. I've been doing it for 15 years and, and I'm now starting to get concerned about chemical resistance because all plants become resistant to the use of chemicals after a period of time. That is Vass sheep farmer Graham Stewart with Stan Shaw. It is three minutes to one here on the Country Hour and just over... A 1,000 head of cattle sold at the Mount Barker sale yards this morning. So numbers down by almost a third on last week's sale. Terry Birkin is there. Hi, Terry. Can you go through the details? Hi, Belinda. We've made a yearling and weaning cattle dominating numbers again. Good competition from both feeders and restockers today and prices remain equal across all categories. Lightweight weaned steers sold to a top of 660 cents while lightweight yearling steers reached 588 cents. Weaner steers sold from 460 cents to 626 cents for heavyweights, while the lighted weights returned 450 cents to 660 cents a kilo. Weaner heifers returned 450 cents to 548 cents a kilo. Yearling steers made 332 cents to 588 cents, while yearling heifers sold from 374 cents to 522 cents. Grown steers made 340 cents to 478 cents and grown heifers regained selling from 390 cents to 440 cents per kilo. Heavy prime cows were selling from 312 cents to 348 cents while store cows returned 100 cents to 280 cents per kilo. Heavy bulls selling from 260 cents to 328 cents while lighter weights returned 260 cents to 474 cents depending on weights and quality. This is Terry Birkin from MLA's National Livestock Reporting Service. Thank you so much for going through those details, Terry. That wraps up the livestock markets for this week. Tomorrow, Danny Burkett will be along. He'll be going through the results of the wool market this week. Not far away from the news at one. Hello, I'm Rachel Mealy. Join me for The World Today, a money laundering probe launched into two of Australia's largest bookmakers. More disruption in inland New South Wales as hundreds flee rising floodwaters and a glut of greed. The energy minister's warning to Australia's biggest gas companies. A shortage of supply problem. This is a glut of greed problem that has to be basically short-circuited and common sense prevailed.
The World Today. Join me. And just this text on the work that needs to be done to try and get arum lilies under control. Private landowners who don't control arum lilies should be fined. Most state and local funding goes on fire-related activities. The only way it's been even remotely controlled is by volunteers. One o'clock.